Hebrews 2, and I'll be reading 5 to 18. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. May God add his blessing to the word. Well, good morning. We've just started a series in the book of Hebrews asking how Christ is the answer to our doubts. The book of Hebrews answers the question, if God loves us, why is our life so hard? If God is good, why am I suffering? And the answer Hebrews gives is, life is a journey to God and you get there by following Jesus. Life is a journey to God and you get there by following Jesus. But for those of us who are struggling or who have doubts, that's a hard answer. Unless Jesus is really worth it. And that's what the author of Hebrews spends the entirety of his letter saying. Jesus is better than anything you could hope for. In every way, Jesus is our better hope. Life is hard. Suffering is hard. But that is the way of Jesus. And he is worth every bit of suffering and hardship. Now, last week, we looked at the first chapter of Hebrews, which discusses how Jesus is the very radiance and character of God, right? Higher than the angels. It was an amazing view of the the highness of Christ's divinity. And today's passage is is almost the opposite. Instead of looking at, at angels, we're looking at people and suffering. But the conclusion is the same. Jesus is high and glorified and better than any hope we could imagine because he was made like us in every way. 
Jesus is high and exalted because he was made low and suffered. And if you want to find God, you have to follow Jesus there. That's the road to God. So as we unpack this passage, we're going to look at three things. God's plan for humanity, God's plan for Christ, and the better man. So first, let's pray. God, I pray that you would open our hearts to receive your word. God, give us eyes to see and ears to hear what you have to say to us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So first, God's plan for humanity. So the author starts by quoting Psalm 8. And he does something very interesting with it. And to understand his point, we have to first understand what Psalm 8 is about. Okay? So Psalm 8 is a meditation by King David on God's creation. It starts, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And then he goes on to consider the majesty and the glory of the heavens. So this is familiar, right? Uh, A lot of us know it. He says, the heavens declare the glory of God, the stars, the moon, the universe, the vastness of it all. So David is meditating on the power and the glory and the majesty and the bigness of God's creation, everything he's made. And then he considers us. And compared to the galaxies and the mountains and the roaring seas, David says, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the word for man in the Greek is the word anthropos, from which we get anthropology. And the reason that's important, it's the word for humanity in general, right? It's not just me, it's it's us, okay? And compared to the awesomeness of everything God has made, what are we? Now, if David stopped there, we could easily transition into modern secularism. Right, because society today right, tells us, yes, look at how marvelous everything is. There are 100 billion galaxies, each with hundreds of billions of stars. And even if we traveled at the speed of light, we would never visit them all. And of the 1 billion trillion stars and billion of the planets, uh, we just happen to be on this one and we just happen to be alive. You are just lucky stardust. In light of the amazingness of the known universe, you are completely and utterly insignificant. Your life is not even a cosmic blink in the end. You're less than a blip in the utter vastness and coldness of space. There were billions of years before your short life, and there will be billions of years after. And one day, everything will burn up, and the universe will be eternally cold and dark, and nothing you ever did will matter. The Russian novelist Leo Tolstoy summarized it this way. He said, is there any meaning in my life that death does not destroy? Now, if you struggle with self-worth or anxiety or meaning, or when you face injustice in the world, try using that on yourself to cheer yourself up. Right? Your life, everything about you, completely, utterly, cosmically insignificant. The injustice ravaging others you love, utterly insignificant. I mean, what an identity we have, right? You are meaningless. Everything you love and care about is meaningless. Justice and oppression are meaningless. Oh, well. Fortunately, David doesn't stop there. David goes back to Genesis 1 and 2 and he says, yeah, it looks like we're insignificant. But for some reason, God has made us his crowning achievement in all of creation. 
The God who with the word of his power set the billions of galaxies in motion and sustains them with his word. That God made you personally, knows you personally and made you in his image. You're not cosmically insignificant stardust. You're the most cherished part of God's creation. You alone bear the very image of God who created the heavens and the earth and set the moon and the stars in the place. Right? And not only that, God gave you a job. Your life has God-given meaning and purpose. Okay, so what is that job? Right? So David says, you have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the fields, the birds of the heaven and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. What's going on? God is the sovereign king of all that he has created. And God's eternal plan was to give us a kingdom to rule under him. God's plan was to delegate his ruling authority to us, to follow him in bringing his rule to all that he has made. Now, you might wonder, dominion, all things in subjection, that sounds like we're tyrants. Are you saying we have the right to kill, burn, and pillage the world however we want? No, absolutely not. First, God crowned us with glory and honor to bring order out of chaos, to create good, true, and beautiful things, to take the raw materials of God's creation and to work them into something good. And second, our job is to rule as God rules under God's rule. That means God's plan is for us to execute and bring justice and righteousness and beauty. God wants us to order all things to maintain justice and righteousness on earth. That's your purpose and meaning in life. Now, compare that identity with Lucky Stardust. So having meditated on the seeming insignificance of humanity and yet the crown and glory that God has bestowed on us, given us to rule under him, David finishes a psalm like this. He says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Right? He says, God, your plan is wonderful and majestic. God, you are wonderful. So the author of Hebrews starts by quoting this portion of Psalm 8 to remind us of God's purpose to subject the world to come to humanity. And then he says, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. And what is that? Look, the world is not the way it ought to be. We are not the way it ought to be. And we don't do our job. Everything is in subjection to us so that we can bring order out of chaos and execute justice and righteousness. And you might be in your seat thinking, give me a break. Our world is a mess. Look around you. Chaos reigns. Injustice reigns. The world worships unrighteousness. Evil is good. Good is evil. In fact, you might look at humanity's track record and, and you might want to say, God, why on earth would your plan be for humanity to have dominion over everything? That's not a majestic plan. It's a dumb plan. And the whole story of the Bible is precisely about had everything unraveled when humanity decided to go its own way. Live under God rule, God's rule? No, we'll make our own rules. Execute justice and righteousness? No, we'll execute whatever leads to our own personal gain. And when we turned away from God, we unleashed the power of death. We have two major problems, and they're related. Our disobedience and turning away from God 
deserves God's punishment, and our disobedience has unleashed death. The band Coldplay has a song with the line, I don't want to battle from beginning to end. I don't want to cycle or recycle revenge. I don't want to follow death and all of his friends. That's the world. We don't follow God's rule, but we follow death and all of his friends. Our constant struggle and striving with each other, battling with each other and ourselves, death and his friends. The constant fighting and chaos and revenge that drives the world, death and his friends. Everything wrong with the world, death and his friends. So the author of Hebrews says, we don't see everything subject to him, but, but we see him. If you think Psalm 8 is just about humanity, then yeah, we've got a major problem. Death and all his friends reign, and we are following along. But we see him. That brings us to our second point. So second, God's plan for Christ. So verse 9 says, But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So what on earth is going on? The author of Hebrews is saying, Psalm 8 is about Jesus. Jesus is the one who has dominion over all, who rules and reigns with justice and righteousness, bringing order out of chaos. Jesus is the one crowned with glory and honor. God's plan to bring order out of chaos, to execute justice and righteousness, was for Jesus to reign supreme. So you might think, aha, that deals with the problem of humanity not doing its job. Because if Psalm 8 is about humanity, and we're supposed to be ruling under God, major problem. Right? But if it's about Jesus and how he is the good king, that works. But hold on. Not so fast. The use of Psalm 8 here is remarkable. Because Psalm 8 is clearly about humanity. I mean, you look at the context, look at the historical situation, look at what David's doing here. It's not a prophecy about Jesus to come. It's clearly about humans. Psalm 8 is about us. Right? You read it, you give it, to, give it to any Williams student and say, read this text. What's it say literarily? It's about people. But Hebrew says, it's about Jesus. Well, which is it? Is it about humanity or is it about Jesus? Yes, it's both. And that's the key for reading the Old Testament. The passage is about humanity, but it's also about Jesus. How can that be? Well, you know, we often remark the Bible is a sophisticated text. It takes some work to unpack it to really understand what it's saying. Jesus is the true human God sent to redeem all humanity. Jesus is the better Adam who succeeded everywhere we fail. Psalm 8 tells us about Jesus because it tells us about humanity. And that means if we really want to understand what it means to be human, we need to understand Jesus. If you read Psalm 8 as only about us, you won't really understand what it says about us. Now, you might be thinking, wait, hold on. Psalm 8 is not a prophecy about Jesus, so you can't read it that way. It's about humanity. Right? It's cheating to say it's about Jesus when David clearly was not writing about Jesus. Yes and no. Uh, so for added fun, look next at verse 13 in our passage. And the author says, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. 
And he said, this is God, Jesus saying this. Well, that's Isaiah speaking about himself. Those verses are about Isaiah. But the author of Hebrews takes those and puts them in the words of Jesus, puts them in Jesus' mouth. I mean, what? Right? Isaiah says they're about himself. Isaiah wasn't prophesying, saying, this is what the Messiah will say. And the author of Hebrews knows that. He knows, he knows how to read his Bible better than we do. But still, he takes the words from Isaiah and he says, this is Jesus. We can put these in Jesus' mouth. After Jesus' resurrection, on the road to Emmaus, he met with two disciples. And he, told, he goes through and he tells them how all the law and the prophets, all the Old Testament, was about him. And we might think, well, yeah, he showed them all the prophecies that he fulfilled. But that's not what Jesus said. Jesus said every story in the Old Testament, every verse, everything, prophecy or not, is ultimately about him. If you just read the historical and grammatical meaning of an Old Testament verse, you'll miss that. You'll say, well, this is Isaiah talking about himself. But if you know that everything is about Jesus, then you'll get the key to understanding it. Judges is about Jesus. Leviticus is about Jesus. Song of Songs is about Jesus. If you're going to understand the 39 books, which is like 1,400 pages in my Bible, if you're going to understand all that, you must always, for every verse, stop and ask, how is this about Jesus? So, we see him crowned with glory and honor because of suffering and death, and that's a major challenge. The author says that Jesus was crowned with glory and honor because of suffering, not despite it. Now, why is that a challenge? A lot of us, when we suffer, we think, ha, proof that God is not good. Or we think, ha, proof that God doesn't exist. But the Bible says, no, suffering is proof that Jesus is crowned with glory and honor, fulfilling God's plan to rule with justice and righteousness. I'm sorry, I mean, you know, we say, what? That's right. The Bible says suffering is the proof that Jesus is crowned with glory and honor. You know, our world tells us the purpose of life is to be happy. I mean, we're cosmically insignificant stardust, so what else is there to live for? And so when suffering comes, it's an assault on our purpose in life. It's an interruption of happiness. And, you know, whether we're secular materialists or not, we've been affected by this belief. We're swimming in this water that tells us life is about being happy or comfortable or safe, whatever it is. And so suffering makes us doubt. There's a German poet who allegedly said, of course, God will forgive me. That's his job. And, you know, I think that we've added, of course, God will give me a good life. That's his job. We wrongly think that God's job is to give us comfort and safety and happiness. Because, and then suffering means God is not doing his job. Suffering leads us to doubt. Is God really for me? Is God really in control? Is God really good? Can you resonate? I once heard a story of a pastor who went golfing and he was paired up with somebody he didn't know. And... Uh, the man had lots of questions about God, lots of doubts, and, and the pastor did his best to, to answer them, to explain what the Bible says, how to read it, etc. 
But at one point, the man finally, you know, sort of brusquely exclaimed, look, I can't believe in, in a God who would have let my child die. And the pastor suddenly realized this man's problem wasn't doubt. It was anger. He didn't doubt God. He was angry at God. And if your suffering is leading to doubt, you know what? Probably it isn't. Your problem isn't doubt. Be honest. You're mad at God. God owes you a better life, but you're suffering and you're angry. But, you know, actually, suffering should lead us to doubt some things. You should doubt the lie that God's purpose for you is to have a safe, comfortable life free from suffering. You should doubt the lie that the best God has for you is to be happy or to have an exciting life. You should doubt the lie that your meaning and purpose is to fulfill your dreams. If suffering causes you to doubt God's goodness, the Bible says here and everywhere, it's because you believe a lie about God. So, yes, let suffering cause you to reject that lie. In fact, that might be the main reason God is letting suffering into your life. C.S. Lewis famously said, pain is the megaphone God uses to speak into your life. Because as we'll see here, God has more for you than the tiny little worlds that we allow ourselves to inhabit. So, if Jesus was crowned with glory and honor through suffering and death, what did he accomplish? Let's look at verse 14. It says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Do you remember death and all of his friends? Jesus came to destroy them all. The problem of humanity is that because of our disobedience, we and everything are subject to death and decay. It's all supposed to be subject to our God-given rule. But we in all creation groan because instead we are subject to death. And Jesus came to destroy the power of death and to deliver us from its grip. Why are you anxious? Why do you battle from beginning to end, striving and everything in life for meaning? Why do you overwork? Why do you fantasize about the perfect spouse who's going to complete you and make your life perfect? Why do you count and recount your retirement funds? Why do you people please? Do you think your real problem is that you're afraid you won't have enough money? Right? Or, or that somebody won't like you? Really, you're, you feel like your life is falling apart because your GPA might fall a little? Or people are starving themselves to be beautiful because the most important thing is to be pretty? That's our biggest fear? This passage is saying, we let all those things control us and drive us to the ground because we are afraid of facing our real fear. Remember Tolstoy, is there any meaning in my life that death does not destroy? All our anxiety and worrying and striving are hopeless attempts to distract ourselves from the reality that we're going to die and everything we live for will be meaningless. We don't want to follow death and all of his friends, but we can't help it. We are enslaved to death. We release the power of death through our disobedience to God, and now death has power over us. Why? Because the wages of sin is death. And until our sin was dealt with, until our disobedience and defiance against God was dealt with, death had every right to enslave us. But Jesus, through his death, set us free. Now, how did he do that? 
Well, verse 17 tells us through propitiation. It's not a word we use all the time. You can tell I had to stop in order to pronounce it right. A propitiation is a sacrifice that turns away wrath. And on the cross, Jesus took the punishment that we deserve so that he could set us free from the power of sin and death. Death and all of his friends, and that's us, deserve punishment, and Jesus took it through his death. And Hebrews says that Jesus is the founder of our faith. And that founder word, it's often translated very differently. Do you know what that word founder or author or pioneer means? It's a pioneer who steps in the gap and faces an insurmountable enemy that you can't and conquers in your place so that you can have victory. So now, if you belong to Jesus, death has no hold on you, no condemnation, only blessing. And because you've been set free from the power of death, you're set free to walk in the power of God that God has purposed for you. Remember Psalm 8. We are set free now to rule under God, to live as kings and subject creation to God's reign. And that's our final point. We saw God's plan for humanity, God's plan for Christ, and finally, the better man. So not only is Jesus the better man in every way, but he makes us into the humanity we were always meant to be. Remember, our job is to rule as kings, right? All of creation is meant to be subject to us. Well, that means more than you might think. And we see that really clearly if we look at 1 Corinthians 15. So Paul also takes Psalm 8, and he also says that's really about Jesus. And so he's writing about the resurrection, and Paul says, For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom of God, the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. So what does it mean that God has put all things in subjection to Jesus? Well, Paul tells us Jesus is going to deliver a kingdom to God after destroying every rule and authority and power. And Hebrews tells us that Jesus destroyed the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. Through his death, through his propitiation, right, standing in the gap for us, Jesus has destroyed the power of the devil to give a kingdom to God. And do you, do you know why Jesus bought your forgiveness with his death? Well, in Luke 12, 32, Jesus says, Fear not, little flock. For it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Jesus destroyed the devil so that he could give a kingdom to God the Father so that you and I could rule it according to our eternal destiny. Jesus bought your forgiveness so that you could be crowned with glory and honor, ruling over all creation. Let me ask you, what are you living for? I mean, seriously, what's your greatest purpose in life? Do you think that you're here to enjoy life, to eat good food, to have a nice retirement in the sun? Do you think you're here to fulfill your dreams or to express yourself? Do you know what you're here for? To destroy the work of the devil. Seriously, what do you think you're doing when you rule over God's creation in justice and righteousness? 
You are declaring war upon death and the devil and saying, you will not reign here. We give you no quarter. Death and all of his friends, get out. Satan, get out. This is God's creation and you have no power, so get out. You have more to live for than a comfortable, safe life with a nice retirement or with adventure or with a higher GPA. And every time you settle for that, you are missing out on an opportunity to follow Jesus into war and declare war to destroy the works of the devil. I mean, what, do you have something better to do with your time? I mean, sure, defeating the powers of darkness so that righteous and justice can reign sounds good, but I really just want to go shopping. Get out of here. And let me tell you, the number one way that you can disarm the devil is by following Jesus in your suffering. Jesus defeated death through death. Do you have another strategy that you think will work better? Right, Jesus, the very radiance and character of God, defeated death and the devil through himself, experiencing suffering and death. But you're going to do it by getting the perfect body or raising your GPA or making a few more friends or being in the sun more? Being a little more comfortable in life? If you think your highest good in life is to avoid suffering, then you're following death and all of his friends when you should be declaring war on the devil and defiantly declaring, there is nothing you can bring against me that won't make me more than I could ever have been on my own. Remember Psalm 8? In Romans 8, Paul says that all creation groans for the sons of God to be revealed. Do you know what that means? All of creation, the heavens, the earth, the stars, and the moon, which God has set in place, they are groaning for you to take your rightful place, ruling over God's creation. It's not just God that wants you to step up and be the man and woman that he designed you to be. Everything in creation longs for it. But this is not easy. How are we going to do it? Well, look at our passage. When the author of Hebrews says, at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, that doesn't just mean we don't see everything in subjection to humanity. We don't see everything in subjection to Jesus. The future resurrected world in which death is defeated and justice reigns, we don't see it yet. But we see him If you're going to face suffering with courage and hope, if you're going to live a life of faith amidst doubts, if you're going to follow Jesus in defeating the power of the devil, you must keep your eyes on him. Because if you just look around now, it doesn't look like everything is subjection to Jesus. It will lead you to doubt. But if you do that, if you just look around, you're ignoring the most important evidence we have. Because Jesus is the evidence we need. And the good news of the gospel, the whole point of the, of the book of Hebrews, is that Jesus is enough. Jesus is not some high and lifted up deity that we could never reach. He's like us in every way. We can relate to him, and even better, he can relate to us. And he is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. Do you know what that means? Jesus is not ashamed of you. He's proud of you if you belong to him. He delights in you. The God of a hundred billion galaxies looks at you and says, 
You are so cosmically significant that I'm going to make you my brother, my sister. I am going to die to make that happen. So look to Jesus, our better man. Look to his perfect life and his perfect death and his perfect resurrection. And you will have the power in your life in the face of suffering and disappointment to say, Jesus is enough. Your destiny is to reign with him over all things.